You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. When it comes to unity, unfortunately, the church looks very similar to the culture. And I think the year 2020 really revealed this to us. Obviously, 2020 was a difficult year, but one of the things that made it really difficult is all the division and all the fights going on in our culture. You had fights around politics, around COVID-19, health protocols. Now we're seeing fights around vaccines, uh, around racism, and all of these different hot topic kinds of issues. And really what that showed us is just our, our culture right now is so incredibly divided But the church, surprisingly, is no different than that. All of those fights we saw in culture really bled their way into the church, and it was a difficult year for the American church. And this is not what God wants for us. I can almost hear Jesus when he said these words to his disciples, let it not be this way with you. God desires unity for his church. He created the church to be unified. And so when we go against the unity that God is creating, things fall apart really, really fast. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives this famous list called the fruit of the Spirit. But before he gives the fruit of the Spirit, he gives actually a different list. It's called the works of the flesh. And these are the things that we do when we're not following God's will, when we're living according to our own sinful nature. I just want to read to you a few of the works of the flesh. In Galatians 5, 20 and 21, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Do you notice a common thread through any of those works of the flesh? They all have to do with division. They all have to do with tearing down and breaking apart the unity that God has created in his church. Most of the works of the flesh have to do with division. And yet what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 is those who practice the works of the flesh, they have no place in God's kingdom. That is strong language when it comes to division and disunity. And yet for many of us, we've grown almost apathetic about unity because we see it so much. Uh, the, di- the division, we see the fighting, and we almost wonder if there is any other way. I follow a uh, pastor uh, in Canada called, uh, his name is Kerry Newhoff, and I follow him on Twitter, and he asked a question a couple weeks ago. He just said, what's the biggest leadership challenge you're facing right now? And many people commented on there, and they said things like getting volunteers to serve and lead, you know, getting people back to in-person worship gatherings. And I want to read you my response on Twitter to Kerry Newhoff. I said, my biggest challenge in leadership is unifying people on Jesus's mission when they naturally tend towards cultural division. It's unifying people on the mission that God has for them when naturally what happens is all these fights bleed their way into the church and we see the church reflect the same exact division that we see in the culture. And we almost wonder, is there any other way or, or, or do we even care? Okay, so there's you know, thousands of different denominations and, and fractures within the church. You know, can we do anything about it? Does it even matter? And we almost get so overwhelmed with this problem that we don't care. We've become so casual and nonchalant. Uh, Pastor Francis Chan wrote a recent book. I just started. This is my next book on my reading list. It's called Until 
unity. And it's really based around Ephesians chapter 4. So it's a perfect text. If, you, if you're challenged by today's teaching, I want to encourage you to check out this book, Until Unity by Francis Chan. And even in the introduction, he brings up this idea that so many Christians are so casual about this idea of unity when God cares so much about it. This is what he says. Our casual, dismissive attitude toward unity is incredibly dangerous for three reasons. You ready for these? Number one, God is disgusted with it, with disunity. Number two, the world is confused by it. When they look at the church, they should see something different. And number three, it could be evidence the Holy Spirit is not in us. So God doesn't desire disunity or division for the church. He doesn't want the church to be squabbling and fighting. He desires us to be deeply rooted in him and to be one with one another. Number two is really this hurts our our influence, our witness on the world. If we want to see more and more people experience the good news of the gospel and become disciples of Jesus, then we need to be unified. So the world is, it's confusing to the world. Like, like, do you have anything to offer us, right? And then number three, unity at its core is not just something we do. It's not just something we, we try harder to be united, although it t- does take effort. Unity is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our community. And so if we consistently are people who create division or are a church that, that consistently is fighting, splitting, and all of this stuff is going on, that might be evidence either that we're suppressing the work of the Holy Spirit or maybe we never truly responded to the gospel to begin with. Those are some serious reasons why unity matters. And so my goal today is not only to get you to care about unity and, and, and to be as disgusted with division as God is, really my goal is to show us, first of all, how we can be united. What is it going to take for us to actually live out the unity of the Spirit? And then number two, some more reasons why unity, theologically speaking, is so important for the church. So let's go ahead and jump into our teaching text for today. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4, starting off in the first three verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So when Paul says, therefore, in Ephesians chapter 4, he's looking back over the first three chapters. Maybe you remember, but, but Ephesians is really divided into two halves. The first three chapters is a lot of doctrine and theology. And the second three chapters, 4 through 6, is very practical. And so when Paul says, therefore, he's saying, in light of all of this dense gospel theology I've just written about, this is what you should do with it. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk differently, and that's really a way of saying live your life differently. Don't just believe these truths. Live differently because of it. And this word worthy is the Greek word axios. It's where we get our words axis or axle from. And really, it was this this word that was associated with weight. Uh, It was helping you measure how much you had of something. So if you wanted to see, you know, how how much gold you had, how much value, how much worth you had in gold, you would take it and you would would put it on a scale, right? You get the idea of an axle, right? Something like that. Put it on a scale and you would measure it until they're equal the same thing. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying we've been called to an amazing life by God. 
We've been saved. We've been forgiven. We have this beautiful hope. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We're called into community, into the household of God. We, we have this amazing calling. Now, what we have to do is make sure the life we live is the same as that. It's equivalent to that. that, that the way that we live is the same as the calling to which we've been called. Here's the way that we might say it. Saved people don't stay the same. Saved people don't stay the same. And, and this is really a, a common misconception I find with people in the church, that there's kind of, you know, two tiers of Christians. There, there's one level of Christians who they just, you know, kind of believe these things, but they never live differently. And then there's like the extra credit Christians. There's the bonus Christians where, you know, they don't really believe the gospel, they actually live it. There's no category for that in scripture, that salvation is both the justification, the being made right with God, and the sanctification, the, the, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to cleanse us, to make us holy, to, to heal us. Uh, really, salvation is both the forgiveness for your past sins and also the freedom from future sins. And so if we're saved, we're going to live differently, necessarily. Saved people don't stay the same. And, and so because of that, what Paul is going to do is, is really for the rest of Ephesians, give us all of these different ways that we can live differently. All of these different ways that God is calling us to live our lives differently. And here today, specifically, the focus is on unity, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he's going to give us four ingredients for unity. These are four essential ingredients. These are character traits that you and I can live out in our lives that will actually help us be the kinds of people who can create unity in whatever group we're a part of. The first one he mentions is humility. Humility is putting others first. It's putting others first. And the opposite of humility is pride. Uh, pride says me first. Humility says you first. And we don't need anyone to teach us how to be proud or arrogant, do we? We do that from the time that we're really little kids. And we have a me-first attitude in so many different ways, even in simple ways like a conversation where you always have to get the last word or you always have to be the star of the show and, and bring the direction and the attention to you. We have a me-first attitude when it comes to serving. We want other people to serve us and meet our needs. Like think about even in a marriage or in a family or with your friend group that, that there's this expectation to, to, to be the one who is being served. Or maybe we have a me-first attitude when it comes to your career and it's climbing that ladder of success and, and wanting to be on the top. And yet what Jesus taught us is he taught us to lay down our lives for others. He taught us to wash one another's feet. And so humility is really this key ingredient for unity. In fact, I would say that pride is one of the things that disintegrates the foundation of unity within the church. And so we need to learn to adopt the humble kind of attitude that Jesus displayed. And, and it doesn't mean we have poor self-esteem or low self-esteem. In fact, I would say true humility is actually a result of a grounded identity as a son or a daughter of God. It, it's a grounded identity as being adopted by our Heavenly Father so that we're not looking for fulfillment or validation from the world or from what we do or from other people's opinions of us because we know what God thinks of us. He has called us our, His own and He loves us so much. And that enables us to live out of a place of fulfillment instead of living out of a place of deficit, always looking for validation from one of That's the first ingredient for unity is we have to be humble. Paul says, with all humility, not just a sprinkle of humility, we need to be humble people. 
The second essential ingredient for unity is gentleness. Gentleness, although it might sound like weakness, right? We might tend to think someone who's gentle is fragile, that sort of thing. But gentleness is really strength under control. Another word for gentleness we could use is mild, to be mild. And whenever I hear the word mild, what I think of is salsa. Anyone else think about that? You know, mild, medium, or hot salsa. In fact, last week, uh, I accidentally ordered the wrong salsa on my burrito. Instead of ordering just the regular salsa, I you know, did it on my phone, and I accidentally clicked the hottest salsa on the menu. And I didn't know that, so that when I got my burrito, I also proceeded to put a bunch of hot sauce on it. And what happened was I went to eat my burrito, and I couldn't finish it to be honest, and I, and I like hot stuff as much as the next person, but I could not finish it because it was overpowering. It was unbearable, and what gentleness means is it doesn't, means, it doesn't mean that we're weak. What it means is we're not overbearing in our relationships. We're not always forcing ourselves or having our own way. We're not abrasive or mean. We're not jerks, right? What to be gentle means is it means that, that we're able to speak with one another with tact. We're able to deal with conflict and speak truth, but we're doing it with love. To be gentle is a key ingredient for unity. And Jesus himself describes himself as being gentle and humble of heart, these first two characteristics. So some people might say, well, you know, I can't be gentle because that's just not my personality type, right? Well, if it's not your personality type, you need to pray that God would change your personality type. You know, not truly, but you need to pray that the Holy Spirit would change that aspect of your personality because gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God wants to grow within all of us. That's the second one. Number three, the, the, the third ingredient for unity is patience. Patience means it takes a lot to get angry. It takes a long time uh, to get angry. Literally, the word for patience is macrothumia. It's a combination of two Greek words, makros, which means big or long, and thumos, which means anger or wrath. And so literally what it means is it takes a long time for you to get angry. Anger is like a fire. And we know this, that anger has resulted in so many different damaged relationships and hurt relationships. Well, if you think about anger as the fire, then patience is really the fuse. How long does it take? How much can you endure? You know, another translation, an older translation of patience is long suffering. And it is a suffering, right, to be patient and to endure before you fly off the handle. And there's different kinds of anger, right? Some people are very explosive with their anger. It usually shows up like yelling things or, or, or you know, screaming or flying off the handle or sometimes even getting physically violent. Other people are implosive with their anger where it's kind of a slow burn and it's being passive aggressive. It's the silent treatment, right? It, it, it's, it's holding a grudges for years and years and years. Regardless of whether you're explosive or you're implosive, Anger damages relationships. That's why later on in Ephesians 4, Paul is going to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Resolve those situations. And Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a problem, a conflict with your brother or sister, resolve it quickly. Because if you let those things go on and on and on, it's going to damage the relationship. And so one of the things I think about is Smokey the Bear, right, with forest fires, where he says, only you can prevent forest fires. And the best way to fight a forest fire is not to, to send in all the helicopters, not to do all those things. It's to prevent it. It's to stop that fire from ever happening. And that's where patience 
comes in. Patience is the way that we prevent those relational fires in our lives by just simply learning to, to deal with those problems before they even come up. That's number three. All right, number four. This is the fourth key ingredient that Paul mentions for unity. Number four is bearing with. He says, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with. Bearing with means loving imperfect people. It's the holy habit of putting up with someone's flaws. Now, we'll talk about false peace a little bit later, but really what this has to do with is just recognizing that people are going to talk to you the wrong way, that people are going to offend you, that someone's going to look at you wrong, right? It it might be that they intended to. It might be that you're just perceiving it that way. Uh, People are going to hurt your feelings. Like in the church, relationships are messy, and there needs to be a certain degree in which we're just extending grace where we don't have to resolve like like we don't have to resolve every conflict with every single person because some some of the conflicts we can just overlook we can just bear with that person because people are imperfect people are still works in progress i love what bob goff says about this he says love difficult people you're one of them you're one of them right well, we are imperfect as well we are difficult to deal with as well and so there just needs to be an atmosphere in which the church deals with disagreements, deals with, it's okay, right? It's okay that, that, that you're like that and I'm like that. There's, there's a certain level in which we just stand within grace. We're going to get on one another's nerves. In those situations, we bear with one another. Why? Because we love them. We can love people with the same love that Christ has given us. This doesn't mean that we ignore conflicts that need to be dealt with. It doesn't mean that we ignore uh, discipline and and rebuking and confronting someone when they're in sin. It doesn't mean we ignore doctrine. We'll talk about all of those things, right? But what it means is, it means if there's things that don't need to damage the relationship, we can extend grace in those situations. So those are four essential ingredients. I would challenge you. Which one of those four are you the weakest in? Which one of those four ingredients, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love, which one of those do you need to grow in the most? And I would, I would challenge you to pray, and in this next season, invite God to grow you in those ways. That's how, how we can be unified. Next, what Paul's going to do is he's going to go more in depth on why unity, theologically speaking, is so important. In Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot of ones. That's seven ones. You can count them. Seven ones. And what Paul is doing here is he's driving home through repetition the point. So, so what does God want for the church? He wants us to be one. He wants us to be one. That specifically is the language in John 17. When Jesus prays for unity in the church, he uses that same word. God, I pray that you would make the church one, that we would be one. That's why the title of today's sermon is One, right? And, and there's, these are seven compelling reasons why God wants the church to be one. And we're going to go through all seven of these. So the first one is one body. This means that we are part of the same family. 
It doesn't matter uh, how different you look than the next person. It doesn't matter how, what language you speak, what part of the world you live in. There is one body of Christ. There's one family. You could go, and maybe you've done this, you can go to a different part of the world. And if you find someone who's a Christian, then you are their brother or sister in Christ. There's lots of diversity but there's the same family. And you might know this, right? If you have, you know, kids of your own, your kids might be drastically different. They might not always see things eye to eye. They might have different gifts and abilities, but the reality is amidst all the diversity of the church, there is unity. There is unity. And that body of Christ is much larger than just Hill City Church. It's much larger than just, you know, the, the church in the Treasure Valley, the church in Boise. It's a global church. There's one body of Christ. That's the first one. Next, there is one spirit. This means that the Holy Spirit lives in all of us. The Holy Spirit is the one who lives in all of us. And I think back to Ephesians 4.3, where Paul just said that this is, this is the spirit and the bond of peace. Think about that. The Holy Spirit is the one who creates the unity within us. I mean, we don't just try to be more patient. The Holy Spirit grows patience, right? It's a fruit of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to grow and make us into the kinds of people who can actually be unified within the church. We can say that the Holy Spirit is the glue. He's the bonding agent that holds the church together. And so for us, the dependence on the Holy Spirit is not just an important thing for living out our personal or individual calling to make a difference for God's kingdom. Dependence on the Holy Spirit is essential so that he can shape us to be the kinds of people who can actually be unified. Next, there is one hope. One hope. What this means is it means we will live with God and each other forever. Right? So often we think about heaven, we focus on the place. What's the place of heaven going to be like? But the reality is, one of the most significant things about heaven is the people. It's the people. Now, it's the person of God. We will dwell with God, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. That's a beautiful promise. But we will also be with one another. And I wonder, how many times do we you know, have these, these false divisions that don't need to be there, with other Christians, with other followers of Jesus here in this present age where we're just going to be sitting right next to that person in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to be seated around the banquet table at the wedding supper of the Lamb with that person. So why don't we sit around a dinner table with that person now? Why do we break fellowship with that person now when we're going to be with them? We have the same hope in heaven. I think about Revelation chapter 7 where there's people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and they're all crying out the same thing. Worthy is the lamb that is slain. And so for us, we have to keep that, that heavenly mindset, that hope in mind, and not allow ourselves to have these divisions now that won't exist in the future. Next, there is one Lord. This means we follow Jesus together. He, he is one Lord. He is the one who, who unites us. He is our leader and I think about Jesus' own disciples during his earthly ministry. And in a very real sense, although, you know, there was 12 main disciples, there is an incredible amount of diversity amidst those people. I mean, think about Simon the Zealot. That was someone, uh, a zealot was someone who hated the Romans so much that they were hatching plots to, you know, to overthrow them and maybe even killed Roman soldiers. That's Simon the Zealot. And then you have Matthew, the tax collector. He would have been a Jew who, who basically kind of gave up his, his Jewish heritage so that he could work for the Romans, right? They would call him a sellout, right? He sold out and he's working for the Romans. You have someone who works for the Romans and you have someone who hates them so much, maybe he's killed them or at least he wants to kill them, right? That's a lot of diversity. 
Th- those two people, we could say, are voting for different presidents, right? They're, 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 there's a political diversity. They're, there's these things that happen there. And yet what unites them? The fact that Jesus is their master and, and their submission to the authority and the lordship of Jesus in their lives. And so for us, even if someone you know, believes something a little different than us or goes to a different church than us, if Jesus is their Lord and they have the Holy Spirit in them, then, then we can unite with them, right? Especially within our own congregation, that Jesus being Lord is the thing that unites us so that we're going the same direction. Next, Paul says we have one faith. One faith. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't disagreements on theology, right? We know that there's, there's lots of different disagreements and in interpretation and that sort of thing. What it does mean is we believe the same essential elements of the faith. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, really, there's these core doctrines of our faith. And, and for us, if you want to check out what we would say are those core doctrines, you can go to our website, hillcityvoice.org, and you can click on our statement of faith on the Who We Are page. And what that's going to show you is it's going to show you these are the things that we think are the core doctrines of the faith. It's going to be things like the Trinity. You know, God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's going to involve things like the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth. It's going to involve things like the authority of Scripture, uh, the, the, you know, the fact that there is an eternity and everyone will, will spend eternity somewhere. Like It's all of these kind of essential ingredients. But there's also these kind of tier two or tier three issues that people make out like they're, they're tier one issues. And they divide over all of these kind of things. And we're just a church who says, listen, as long as we're all committed to the one faith, then there can, there can be some disagreements. And in fact, I'm sure there's going to be things that where I get to heaven where I'm like, man, that's, a, that's this, this, this tier three issue. And I was wrong about that, right? And we can be humble in those ways. It's okay to have disagreements on the fringe issues, but we must hold back to the essentials of our faith. So when Paul says that, that there is one faith, he's not saying that it doesn't matter what you believe, everyone can believe whatever they want. He's saying we have to hold to these, these, these essentials of our faith, but there's freedom in those non-essentials. Next, what Paul says is there's one baptism. There's one baptism. This means that we have made the same declaration. Baptism, at its core, is a declaration of your faith in Jesus. It is the step. It's the the introductory step when you make a decision to follow Jesus and you say, so what's next? How do I go about officially putting my faith in Jesus? The, The answer is baptism. It's what Jesus instructed us to do, and it's what we see. Read through the book of Acts. It's what we see people doing all throughout the early church and for hundreds of years. But what baptism actually is, it's an act of unity. It's interesting it shows up here in all of these, these unifying things. Baptism is an act of unity, both with Jesus, but it's also an act of unity with one another. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united this is speaking of baptism, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So what Paul is doing in Romans 6, you can read Romans 6 later, is he's talking about when you go under the water, you're you're symbolically reenacting Jesus dying, going into the grave. And when you are raised up out of the water, you're symbolically reenacting being raised up with Christ. And so that's a unity, right? Baptism is this ceremony of unity with Jesus. But what's amazing about baptism is this is the way that every follower of Jesus has responded in putting their faith for the last 2,000 years. 
ever since the early church. That's amazing, right? For this, this, the same ceremony to take place over 2,000 years. And so when you get baptized, it not only unites you with Christ in a unique way, it also unites you with every other follower of Jesus who's been baptized. And so I would just, I would just encourage you, there is a beautiful unity you can have with God. You can be united with, with God's family. You can be a part of the household of faith. And when you can receive God's grace even today and have salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. But we receive God's grace by putting our faith in him. And baptism is that next step for you. We have water baptisms uh, in the Boise River coming up September 5th on Labor Day weekend. And I would invite you, if you've never been baptized, even if you already have a faith in Jesus, but you've never been baptized, to consider that step of baptism and sign up. You can go to hillcityboise.org baptism. There's a video on there. Uh, there's some resources on there, but there's a button that just says you want to get baptized. You can sign up online and we would love to walk alongside you as you take this next step of faith. All right. The last one that Paul talks about is one God, one God and father overall. And this means we worship the one true God. We worship the one true God. This is, this is a statement about God's supremacy. He is over all things. He is through all things. He is the one supreme God of the universe. And this is huge, especially for the original audience. Many of the, the people in the church in Ephesus, they would have come from a pagan background where they would say that they worship multiple gods, right? Multiple spirits. And, and what Paul is saying, no, 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 there is one God. I think about Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And that means that there is no other that can stand against him. There is no other that compares with him. And when we are united in worshiping the one true God, we're going to be united with one another. That's one of the best things we can do. The closer we draw to God, the closer we're actually going to draw to one another. And so fix your eyes on the one true God. Fix your eyes in prayer and in worship, uh, on worshiping God. And when you do, we're going to stop looking at one another's flaws. Those, those fights would, would actually start to dissolve and they would start, the dividing lines would start to go away. Just like Revelation 7, worthy is the lamb who is slain, right? It's everyone worshiping God. And that's where the unity truly comes from the diversity. So what's the point? The point is that God is not building all of these thousands of churches isolated from one another in the world. God is building one church, and we're part of it. We're a part of it. And so here's our big idea for today. Fight for peace instead of fighting with people. Fight for peace, fight for one another instead of fighting with one another. Because when we fight with one another, the enemy wins. We're not on mission. We're not seeking to make disciples. We're not sharing the gospel. We're, we're totally getting sidetracked. So instead of fighting with people, fight for peace. Prioritize the relationship. Here are three practices that we can do to be people of peace. The first one is be a peacemaker. That's the first practice is be a peacemaker. To be a peacemaker is what Jesus said about his people in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's a characteristic of God's kingdom people. And I would just challenge you, are there ways that you have been divisive? Are there fights that you have had? Have you added fuel to the fire of 2020? Have you added fuel to the fire of the division that we see in the church? If you have, I would challenge you to confess Humble yourself, confess and repent and turn back towards God in those ways. Are there ways that you could grow 
to be more of a person of peace? What are those, one of the four you know, essential ingredients of being a, a peacemaker, promoting unity, that you could grow in and ask, consistently ask this next season for God to grow you in those ways. Now, to be a peacemaker does not mean that you just want everyone to get along at the cost of truth or at the cost of righteousness. We talked about this, right? There's this idea of a true peace. Like Jesus himself, he never shied away from conflict or confrontation when it needed to happen. Uh, Pete and Jerry Schizero say this, true peace will never come by pretending what is wrong is right. So we don't water down the gospel. We don't ignore, you know, heresy. We, we don't ignore even sin. And we, we, we confront, you know, behavior and, and, and those sorts of things. But what it means is it's the way that we approach people. We speak the truth, but we do it in love. It, we, we pray for people. We genuinely prioritize the relationship over being right. And yet so often what we do is we just want to be right. We have these fights, and often these fights, you know, sometimes don't even need to be had. They're on issues that, that maybe don't, won't matter in the new heavens and the earth. They won't matter in 10,000 years from now, and yet we just want to be right. But what we do as peacemakers is we prioritize the relationship over being right. So be a peacemaker. That's who God is calling you to be. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. The second practice is participate in the local church. It's not enough to just say, okay, you know, theologically speaking, every Christian is a part of the church, the, the global, you know, big C body of Christ, because the church is a relational thing. The church fundamentally is people. We are not just united in theory, we are united relationally. And so that means that the global church must always manifest itself in local contexts. It must always show up in a city with a group of people. It doesn't matter if that, that church meets in a building with thousands of people or in a house with five people. But the church must always show up in local ways. So I would challenge you to, to maybe shift your question from what church do you go to, because that's the normal question we ask, what church do you go to, to who is your church? Because the church is much more than a logo or a brand name. The, the church is a group of people. And for you to even think about who are the names, what are the names in the faces of your church? The people who know your story and you know their story. The people who you pray for consistently. And so church is a lot more than just getting content. Maybe you watch our content online. I would challenge you to find a local body of believers that you can connect with relationally. If you're in Boise, then maybe Hill City Church is the right church for you to, to, to actually look for those opportunities through a life group through men's breakfast, through women's events, through Bible studies, through prayer groups. We have tons of different opportunities, but I hope and I pray that your participation in the body of Christ is not limited to just watching a video once a week or listening to a podcast once a week. And so here's what I would specifically say to you. We have uh, an online class called Next Step Class. Uh, you can find that at hillcityboise.org slash next step. And that is an opportunity for you to ask the question, what's your next step? for getting more involved at Hill City Church. It might be joining a serving team in community, knowing people, serving people. It might be joining a life group. It might be some of these different opportunities for getting more involved. But I would just challenge you. If we're going to have unity, we have to know each other's name. We have to be actually in relationship with one another. So go to hillcityboise.org slash next step and find your next step for getting involved and participating in the local church. And then our last practice is to pray for unity. Pray for unity. Like I said, the reality is the Holy Spirit is the glue that really 
does the work of making us the people who can be united. The Holy Spirit is the one who, he's the glue who holds everything together. See, God is the one who creates unity. Notice the language of Paul in verse 3. We just maintain it. We just live in it. God is the one, and the work of the gospel is the thing that actually makes unity in a group of diverse people. And it's just up to us to live like it. God is building one church. We need to act like we're part of one church. And so pray for it. If you see divisions in the world, pray for that. That is important to God. It's on his heart. If you see divisions in our own local church, pray for unity. Pray against the division. Pray against the fighting. Pray for reconciliation. If you have a specific person that you are divided with, pray for reconciliation. Pray that God would forgive them or or forgive you, right? Repent, turn from those things. And we need to be a group of people who deeply seeks and prays for unity. And when we do, the gospel is going to spread. The gospel is going to spread deeper and wider than ever before. I want to close with a prayer. Maybe this can be a prayer that you pray for unity. This is a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hate, may I bring love. Where offense, may I bring pardon. And may I bring union in a place of discord. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.